Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Welcome to The Women's War, a production of iHeartRadio. Rojava might be the friendliest place on earth, and I mean that in a purely literal sense of the word friend. See, in Kurdish, the word haval means friend. I'm not a linguist, and I can't explain to you exactly how it happened, but over the decades of fighting in Turkey and Syria, the word haval came to take on a deeper meaning. Today, it's used in a manner similar to the way the Soviets used comrade. And so when people in Rojava are trying to refer to the revolutionaries in their land, the people in this region who truly believe in the ideology of Abdullah Ajalan, they often call them the Havals. Now, if we were in the United States, a heavily armed group of true believers calling themselves the Friends would absolutely be a terrifying death cult of some sort. But for whatever reason, the word Haval has a friendly quality to it that somehow stops it from being unsettling. While there's a certain militant formality to the word comrade, Haval just feels warm. You cross a checkpoint and the Asayish say, Hello, friend. A soldier offers you a cigarette and you say, Thanks, friend. There's something addictive about the term, and Jake and I fall easily into using it on a regular basis. The morning of July the 22nd, 2019, starts with us both packing up our crap, paying for our time at the hotel, and meeting Alan outside. He picks us and our gear up at around 8 a.m., Alan offers us cigarettes. We're both hungover, thanks to the terrible case of Turkish beer I bought last night, and neither of us particularly wants to smoke, but we take the cigarettes and say, Spas all anyway. That means, thanks, friend. After our first puffs, we rather performatively smile at Alan, look up to him and say, Bosh! That means, good. Alan responds with a wry grin and the words, Spas bosh! Which just means, thanks, good! For the rest of our time together, whenever Alan offers us a cigarette, he'll wiggle his bushy eyebrows and grunt, SPASBASH, at us. It's a light, friendly jab at the fact that, like most foreigners, Jake and I have only learned the words thanks and good in Kurdish. We get on the road, and we roll through a checkpoint just outside of Darik. Alan slows to a stop to hand over his papers. I look out the window at the men and women manning the checkpoint, and I'm struck by how good-looking they all are. Jake seems to notice the same thing, and he leans over to me to say, Everyone here is gorgeous. 
Maya's are particularly drawn to the man in command of the checkpoint, a grizzled male Asaish. I find myself staring at him for a while while he converses with his colleagues. He has a broad, sculpted chin with a perfect John McClane level three-day stubble. His hair is a dusky brownish blonde. He looks like a militant Kurdish George Clooney. There's a cigarette in his left hand, while his right stays behind his back, gripping the magazine of his rifle. As we pass by, he catches me staring at him, and he smiles. Slahaval, he says to me. It means, hello, friend. Calling the folks in Rojava good-looking or attractive doesn't quite get at what Jake and I kept noticing. It's not that everyone here looks like a runway model, it's more that they all look like the exact kind of people you'd cast if you were making a movie. The folks here are all striking, and Jake and I are not the first Westerners to come to Rojava and notice this. In the 1930s, Agatha Christie, author of Murder on the Orient Express and about a billion other books, traveled to Kurdistan with her husband. He was an archaeologist. Christie herself was quite an adventurer, and she traveled widely through much of the region that's now Rojava. She wrote this about the appearance of the people here. Kurdish women are gay and handsome. They wear bright colors. These women have turbans of bright orange around their heads. Their clothes are green and purple and yellow. Their heads are carried erect on their shoulders. They are tall with a backward stance so that they always look proud. They have bronze faces with regular features, red cheeks, and unusually blue eyes. The Kurdish men nearly all bear a marked resemblance to a colored picture of Lord Kitchener that used to hang in my nursery as a child. The red brick face, big brown mustache, the blue eyes, the fierce and martial appearance. We're waved on through the checkpoint, and Alan continues down the highway. As I stare out the window, slightly hungover, drinking coffee and smoking horrible cigarettes, I think about something Habat mentioned yesterday. She'd told us that a decent amount of the men that she worked with in Rojava weren't really committed to the gender equality aspect of the revolution. She thought they were mostly kept in line by the fact that, at the moment, the weight of societal inertia was behind equality. In her opinion, a number of Rojava's men were just too afraid of being publicly shamed to rock the boat. No one wants to be, like, the leper, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. As soon as you feel ostracized from your friends, you'll do anything to get back, you know? Exactly. So, it, that really works, like, yeah, naturally, yeah. yeah. So it's like, if they see everyone, like, oh, fuck, like, we have to respect <laughs> women now, eventually it's just going to become normal. Women. Exactly. Yeah. Even yeah. if those men, I'm sure, deeply, they are not convinced. Yeah, some yeah, of them. Yeah. Or, like, they are not really... But there is a woman there, and, like, what they were going to say? Yeah. The theology is like that here. They can't really like they no, have to no. roll with it, yeah, which yeah. is good. You Just adapt it and do it, then it became a habit. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Hollis. And then and their kids, it would be normal. is a bit of Arabic slang that Chabad uses a lot. It means finished or done. She's saying that in another generation, the bigotry hidden under the surface of some of Rojava's men will disappear because those men will die and they'll be replaced by young men who have only ever known women as their equals. This is a heartening fact, but it's also a scary one. While the change is still skin deep, it's easy to revert. I pondered this as we drove on, and it led me back to thinking about my own country. In November 2019, the FBI reported that hate crimes in the United States had hit a 16-year high. As the coronavirus descended upon American society, hate crimes against Asian Americans surged for the first time since World War II. I think many people were shocked to see so much racist violence and bigotry bubble up into the mainstream. Up until 2016, they felt like the fight against this stuff had been won. For the last few years, we've all had to confront the reality that this was not the case. Some of the explosion in bigotry is new racism, people converted in dark corners of the internet. But much of it, and probably most of it, is a result of people who were quiet bigots for years until they decided it was finally safe enough to be loud. 
As Alon's van trundled into the outskirts of Camishlo, my eyes were caught by a trio of young girls on their way to school. They walked together, heads bare, laughing and giggling, and weighed down with probably twenty books between them. Not too long ago, these girls had stared into a horizon dominated by the black flags of Isis. I wondered what their future would bring. My mind was drawn back to something I'd seen the night before, in the bustling streets of Derik. Jake and I had been poorly navigating the crowded market, looking for beer. As we'd stumbled about, my eyes had been caught by a young soldier on his drive home, atop a scooter. His wife, in full niqab, sat on the back, her face towards the traffic at their rear. It felt like a clear illustration of the fact that many of the people here could still go either way. Rojava's revolutionary sentiments, its radical equality, that stuff did enjoy a lot of popularity and still does. But the continued progress of those ideals relies on the mass of folks in the middle acquiescing to progress because that's where they feel the weight happens to be. The most important question I had to ask about Rojava was this. Will any of it really last? And I knew that my only chance at getting an answer lay in the hearts of the people here. As we pass along, it became obvious that tensions in the area had ratcheted up overnight. The guards at checkpoints all checked our papers thoroughly, and there seemed to be more of them than the day before. A quick search through Google revealed that Turkey's president, Erdogan, had recently made more threats against the Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, the military of Rojava. U.S. emissaries were said to be en route to the region. As we waited in traffic, I couldn't help but stare up at the Turkish border wall, up in the not-too-distance. I couldn't see them, but I felt the weight and guns of NATO's second-largest army, just beyond the horizon. We pick up Chabat outside of her apartment in Kamishlo. She greets us with a thermos of instant coffee, and we go again to her favorite food stand for more falafel burritos. For months afterwards, I found myself periodically craving them. The closest U.S. equivalent I found to the garlic sauce is probably the sauce at Zankow Chicken in Los Angeles, but it's not nearly as good. As we eat, Chabat walks us through our schedule. She set up a meeting with the head of the Women's Economic Development Council for the city of Kamishlo. The building is located in a residential neighborhood, one floor in a tall, dusty brown apartment block. We park outside, and Jake and I grab the minimal necessary equipment to bring inside. We've been warned that this location is a particular target for ISIS sleeper cell attacks. Security is high. I leave my backpack behind, and I just bring my recorder. But I forget to remove my pocket knife. As a little bit of context, I always have a good solid knife on me, particularly when I travel. I've used it to pry open bathroom doors into decrepit public facilities in Serbia, scrape off Nazi graffiti on abandoned buildings in Los Angeles, and to open more beers than I care to mention in more places than I can remember. Bringing a knife is so second nature to me that I often forget that I have it. And that's what happened as I stepped up to the middle-aged Asayish guard running the security checkpoint. His partners, I notice, are two women in their mid-twenties. All three of them have AK-47s, and they all seem to be on high alert. But the old man is by far the most thorough, and the honoriest. He catches my pocket knife tucked into the waistband of my pants, and he is profoundly frustrated to find it. He laboriously explains to Chabat that I will have to pick up my blade on the way out. I say that's fine, but I can tell in Chabat's face that she is, somewhat amusedly, frustrated with me too. Knifeless, we are allowed to enter the building. The Women's Economic Development Headquarters is the cleanest building we've been to in Rojava. It smells sweet, a little like flowers, and a little like fresh laundry. Pictures of female martyrs adorn the walls, and my eyes are immediately drawn to a colorful portrait of Arin Mirkan, one of the most revered shahids, or martyrs, in all of Rojava. Arin was one of the YPG's female fighters. In 2014, during the desperate battle for Kobani, she stymied an ISIS advance by throwing multiple grenades into squads of fighters and then, in a last desperate act of defiance, charging into their ranks and blowing herself up. 
She is reported to have killed dozens of them. I will come to know her face well, her straight black hair, her wide, honest smile, white teeth, and flush, round cheeks. Arin Mirkan hangs in thousands of homes and public buildings all around Rojava. In the Kamishlo Women's Economic Development Council meeting room, it hangs on the wall opposite from a gigantic woodcut portrait of Abdullah Ajalan, Apo, the founder of the PKK. One end of the room holds a heavy bookcase filled with Apo's books. There are two long couches on either wall. Jake Chabot and I take our seats, and Horiam Shamid, head of the Women's Economic Development Council, walks in and greets us. She takes a seat underneath the enormous Apo woodcut, and we begin to talk. My first question is one I've been pondering for a while. What does she see as a bigger struggle, the battle against ISIS or the battle of the women in this region against entrenched male supremacy? You see, the women's struggle is much more difficult than the struggle against ISIS. Of course, ISIS are barbarous enemy. You come to fight them and either you eradicate them or they eradicate you. But the struggle against customs and practices against a religion which limits the rights of women, the struggle to change the mentality of women, this is much harder. In Horiam's view, the victory against ISIS was just one battle in a long struggle. Women have been suffocated in society by the politics of the Syrian state. Their rights have been limited and this mentality has suffocated them. So they are scared to resist, to resist against the oppression around them, to rise up and say, this is my right, I exist. We have difficulties with this. ISIS were well known throughout the world. They were a barbarous enemy, not just for women, but for all people. But women also have hidden enemies around them. Oppressive men, customs, practices, economic repression, hidden things. Women struggle in secret. Much of Horium's work centers around helping the women of Rojava in their struggles against misogyny and bigotry. Rojava's war with ISIS captured the imagination of world media. But this quieter war is the one that will bring actual, lasting victory to the women here. There was a woman whose husband was martyred in the war against ISIS. His family wanted to take her children back because she had no money, and they felt she had no opportunities. She was basically given the choice to either find a new man or give up her children to their dead father's family. Our job was to provide her with a belief in herself, the economic opportunity to struggle against her family and society. Before the war, educational opportunities for women in Syria varied widely depending on their family background and location. And after eight years of fighting and years of ISIS occupation, many women in northeast Syria haven't benefited from the kind of basic education that gives them a chance to survive as a single mother. This particular woman's situation was all the more challenging because she was deaf. But Horium's center helped her find adult education classes that taught her how to sew, which gave her a marketable skill. She works in a tailor shop now, and her economic situation has improved. Her children are with her, and her late husband's family now has no excuse to take them. Years ago, when I worked for a website called Cracked, I spent four long days reading nearly a thousand pages of ISIS propaganda. It was filled with pictures of young men posing with enormous rifles, wielding swords and galloping on horseback, firing rocket launchers into onrushing tanks, and between articles about the proper care and raping of sex slaves. It was a veritable cornucopia of toxic masculinity. And I thought about that as I sat in the air-conditioned meeting room and looked at the portraits of shahids on the walls. These women had been martyred in a struggle against the human distillation of misogyny. Horium clearly venerated them. But during our conversation, she labored, repeatedly, to make the point that these martyrs were but the tip of an iceberg. Even more women are being martyred by the male mentality and by the capitalist mindset. 
In these times, our economy is based on money and earning money. Women who get caught up in this can lose themselves in it, and they too become martyrs. In 2013, American billionaire and Facebook chief operating officer Sheryl Sandberg published the book Lean In. It advised women that they could move forward, fight against entrenched sexism in their industries, and succeed under capitalism if they did stuff like refuse to take off work just because they were pregnant. Lean In was a guide for women to excel under capitalism by pushing through the unfair, unreasonable demands and biases they faced until they reached success. Cheryl herself realized that her advice was not quite as good as it seemed when her husband died, and she found herself trying to lean in as a single mother. The rest of the world realized that Cheryl Sandberg might not be the best source of advice on anything when the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke. This was followed by an ocean of bad PR for Facebook, the worst example being an ethnic cleansing in Myanmar fueled by viral Facebook posts. It was soon clear to everyone that Sandberg, the adult in the room at Facebook, had really just used her credibility to help gloss over the social network's reckless culture. I am certain that Horium never read Lean In, but Sheryl Sandberg's mentality, the idea that women can force capitalism to treat them equally, well, that is very much what Horium was arguing against. Equality, in her eyes, was not about enabling women to exploit people for money just as well as men. It was about providing women with tools to take care of themselves. Western women, they work but receive less. They work in mentality of the men. If I am free here, I can only be as free as the other women here. While we talk, one of Horium's assistants brings in tea. Kurdish tea is normally served with lots of sugar. Often half the glass, or more, will be sugar. But today the tea arrives unsweetened. Horium tells us about her son, who fell Shahid fighting against ISIS. She believes he died to make this woman's revolution possible. But that's only part of her motivation. Horium is a fierce-looking woman, tall, with a pointed jaw and large eyes that burrow into me. She answers our questions politely, but she radiates a strange coolness the whole time. It's not unfriendliness or anger, exactly. I describe the sensation of sitting in the room with her as a little like talking to a coiled spring. Later, over the course of days, I'll come to recognize this particular type of energy. Horium is from the mountains. That's the term people in Rojava use for the old fighters, the members of the PKK who started off as Marxist guerrillas in the mountains before coming down to help build this place. The people from the mountains have a definite hardness to them, an edge that sets them apart from everyone else we meet. It helps explain a little bit of where Horium's coming from. At the end of the interview, we bid Horium goodbye, gather our gear, and make to leave the Women's Economic Development Center. On our way out, Habat points to a brightly colored mural on the wall. It says, Jin Jian Azadi. This, Habat informs me, is one of Rojava's most popular slogans. It means women, life, and freedom. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. 
Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. On our way back to the van, we wave hello to the two young female soldiers at the guard post outside the center. They smile back and wave excitedly, so we ask them if we can come take some pictures. The older male Asaish, the gruff man who'd taken my knife earlier, comes up to hand it back. He trundles away afterwards, rifle in hand, scanning the alleyways around us. I find myself wondering how he feels about working with two women who are young enough to be his granddaughters. I wonder how committed he actually is to this revolution for gender equality. Chabat looks over to me. She's anticipated my question. Should we talk to him? She asks. Her question is rhetorical. We walk over to him, and he stiffens slightly in surprise. Before stopping to talk, he steps away and puts his back to the wall, standing in the place that gives him the most secure view of his surroundings. Chabat asks him first what he thinks of the Women's Economic Development Center and the work that Horium and her colleagues do there. His answer is simple. In my view, it's a very good organization. We have many women who haven't had a chance to be educated, and this helps them. Next, I have Chabat ask him how he felt as a soldier the first time he saw women in his community picking up guns to fight for their liberty. I was very happy. It's nice to have women in the military, and I support them. Finally, I have Chabat ask him point blank, does he consider himself a feminist? I wonder if perhaps Chabot will have to explain the term to him, but he doesn't ask for clarification. Instead, he scrunches up his eyebrows a bit, considers the question, and then answers. No revolution can succeed without the women. We thank the old soldier for his time and get back in the van, just in time for Alain to hand Jake and I two more of his precious, terrible cigarettes. Spas, we say. Spas bash, Alain replies with an eyebrow wiggle. Our next destination is a place I've been excited to see for months, since long before I started planning this trip in earnest. Jinwar. Easily one of Rojava's most ambitious projects, Jinwar is a village for only women and their children. Most of the inhabitants here are survivors of abuse, women who have had to leave violent spouses or oppressive traditionalist families. Jinwar is a place where these people can remake themselves by building a new town from the ground up. The word jinn means woman in Kurdish, and jinwar is a living expression of one of the concepts of Rojava's founder, Abdullah Ajalan. Along with the democratic confederalist system that runs this place, Ajalan is the creator and advocate of something called genealogy, or the science of women, or 
very literally, women's studies. It's sometimes referred to as Kurdish feminism, but that definition doesn't really convey what's going on here. At its core, all of Ajalon's modern beliefs are rooted in the idea that women must be liberated in order to liberate the world. The oppression of the patriarchal system extends past just legal codes and religious rules and into the realms of what we'd call the social sciences. Genealogy, then, is the process by which women reevaluate history, economics, art, education, health, and many other things in an attempt to cast off male-centered biases. On a societal level, advocates of genealogy hope that this will lead to a more equitable civilization and a more accurate understanding of the world. On an individual level, genealogy is a big part of the justification for women's only spaces like Genoir. As a line written on the walls of Genoir states, until women educate and empower themselves, no one is free. My first glance of Genoir is of a lightly fortified desert compound, a dozen or so spacious uniform homes with lavender-painted walls and a tall iron gate, manned by a young woman with an AK-47. Atop the gate is the word Genoir, which literally means women's land. We've arrived in Genoir around 1239. It's hot, dry, and sunny today. The ground below us is baked rock hard, and it appears to be that way everywhere but the rows of crops in the middle of Genoir. Outside the walls, there's more farmland and rising pillars of black smoke. There are constant brush fires in northeast Syria during the summer. Some are natural, some are caused by ISIS sleepers, and some surely are the result of careless cigarette smokers. We're greeted by two women. One is in her mid-twenties in Kurdish, and the other is a tall German woman in her thirties. She's the first foreign volunteer that I've met in Rojava. She's heavily tattooed and initially suspicious of Jake and I. She questions us politely about our intentions here, and once she's satisfied with our answers, she agrees to an interview. What does your family think about you being here? Uh-huh. Yeah? I mean, uh, it's of course, um, let's say, it's also process. Yeah. I think in generally... Uh, like uh, affected by the, uh, of course, like the mass media and in general the situation when you when you say that you live uh, in northern Syria, and if you sound it like this, it's of course like the I, the thing which comes uh, to the mind of many people is war and war and war. Yeah. So it's hard kind of to convince them uh, to understand what is it. And actually, me, I'm like in the process of like them understanding better, no? Like yeah. they wouldn't probably. Do you know what? Oh no, thanks. Good, thank you. No water, just coffee. Uh, ah, it's Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, when I told my family I was coming here, I think their vision was that I'd be dodging sniper fire the whole time. Yeah. And, yeah. <gasps> oh! Yeah, I spilled coffee there. Kabat says it's fine, though. Spilling coffee is good luck if you don't do it on purpose. We sit and talk for a bit, feeling each other out. Our Kurdish host asks me how aware most Americans are about what's happening in Syria right now. She makes a point to ask me if they think that our country's effort here in supporting Rojava is seen as being a lot like the Vietnam War. I have to cringe and explain that most Americans know very little about Syria. They know there's a civil war, they know ISIS was here, but that's most of it. They've probably never heard of the term Rojava. She is not overjoyed by this answer. In the UK, like most people, they don't really know about it, but they'll just be like, the Kurds in Syria, oh yeah, they're the good guys, right? That's, yeah. You know, that's yeah, about you, it. Yeah, you know, they a think, lot of Americans would hear the Kurds yeah, in Syria. Yeah, yeah, like, we like them. Like, no, like my nice. friends at home yeah. probably have no idea what's going on, but they just think, 
they seem cool. Like they seem okay, you know. Like <laughs> that's about it. Yeah, that, yeah, they recognize that they seem, you know. And they would probably say the Kurds in Syria. Oh, the Peshmerga. And oh my like, god! Because yeah. <laughs> well, like you're asking a lot for an American. To there was a lot of laughter at the idea that Americans would confuse Iraqi Kurds with Syrian Kurds. And, tension broken, I pivot to another question, based on something she'd said a few minutes earlier before I started recording. I was interested, she, she mentioned earlier seeing, growing up, seeing that like, it seems like all the people writing books are men, all the philosophers are men. Um, and you know, there's a the picture of a male philosopher, two of them on the walls of this room. Yeah. Would she like to see a picture of a woman philosopher adorn it, or adjoin it at some yeah. point? The male philosopher I mentioned there is Abdullah Ajalan. Jinwar's town hall hosts the obligatory, very large framed picture of Apo. He looks a bit like Bill Cosby in this one, crossing his hands under his chin and grinning impishly out at the world. I'm still concerned about the no-life-without-our-leader patches I've seen on some soldiers' uniforms. The fact that Apo's portrait hangs in the center of almost every meeting room doesn't diminish my worries. Her response is thankfully not the response of a zealot. She explains to me that students of genealogy the women's science that they study in Rojava, have spent years combing through history books to find examples of female scientists, philosophers, inventors, and thinkers whose stories were buried by the traditional education systems of the area. So this uh, section of the genealogy of researching, they found out they, they are still uh, in the process. They came out with the many uh, philosopher women, and if really we were going to take the picture of all of them, then maybe there is, will be no place for their picture even. <laughs> The women of Jinwar haven't separated themselves from men because they hate them, or because they advocate for a permanent segregation of gender. The why of this place is complex, but a large part of it is rooted in history. Not just Kurdish history or Arab history, but human history. Over coffee, we talk about the oppression of midwives and wise women for witchcraft in European and American history. After coffee, they take me on a tour of the largest building in Jinwar, the school they built for their children. It's clean, orderly, and decidedly low-tech, in one corner of the room is a bookshelf covered in pictures and recreations of ancient artifacts. The one that catches my eye is a large, colorful picture of the Venus of Willendorf. You've seen this, even if the name isn't instantly familiar. It's that small, prehistoric statue of a rotund, large-breasted woman. So it's the symbol of, of the woman, no? It's yeah. like the woman body, the, like the fertility symbol. Like It's like the woman goddess who was representing the society, and it's it's clear message, no? The Venus dates back more than 25,000 years. It's the oldest known depiction of the naked female form. And starting in 1908, the universal archaeological consensus was, it's porn. The name is even a form of mockery. European archaeologists thought this statuette was erotic art from a primitive civilization. This remained the scientific consensus until 1996, when professors Leroy McDermott and Kathleen McCoyd carried out some novel research to suggest an alternative theory. They took photographs of heavily pregnant naked women, positioning the camera in the rough location of the subject's eyes. They then compared those photographs to similar shots of the Venus, and found that they were nearly identical. The Venus of Willendorf, long assumed to have been sculpted by a man, looked precisely like the kind of sculpture a pregnant woman might make if she was attempting to create a clay representation of her own body. This analysis, when you look to the body of the, of the, of the Venus, it's like the women body looking them from top. Back in 2016, I actually published a book, A Brief History of Vice, and it discussed the Venus of Willendorf and the theories around it. I interviewed Professor McDermott, and he explained to me that the Venus was likely the very first medical device in recorded history, an obstetric aid made by women for women. He explained, quote, 
Women alone face the inevitable, life-threatening, and painful event of giving birth, and it is very likely that the thought of preparing for it had crossed the mind of a woman before the process became of intellectual interest to men. It's always been fascinating to me that everyone just agreed for nearly a century that the Venus must be pornography rather than even considering another possibility. And 7,000 miles away from my door, the women of Jinwar had been struck by that same reality. And it's, yeah. But it's crazy, you know, if you, for example, if you go to different places and then there's archaeological research and there's like figures appear, many times, of course, the interpretation, oh, it was the goddess, it was the representation of the, of the society, it was the symbol of the clan, it was whatever. And when it's uh, like a statue with women body found, then like the interpretation that is pornography or that yeah. it's you know it's we can already see like the mentality in it how yeah. like the historical moment in the, in the historical like uh, foundation so in the end jinwar exists for the same reason that the ypj exists and the same reason that towns in rojava have women's councils as well as town councils there's an understanding here that the sheer depth of oppression women face means that they need dedicated spaces to build and to rediscover their history and in keeping with the bottom-up nature of governance here, Jinwar's creation wasn't ordered by some central figure or agency. The initial idea came from the collaboration of a number of different local women's organizations, including Congrea Star and the Free Women's Foundation of Rojava. These local groups and international NGOs provided some of the funding, but many of the raw materials that built this place were donated by the villages and towns around it. The villages around, they, from, from one region, they, because the, the houses, the foundation of the houses is stone foundation, mm -hmm. so like it's a really big mount of stone which needs to be turned. So for example, that was the, the one donation. Other donation, which is usually, for example, really expensive sink, is the wood because there is not so much wood. So from the different region, uh, like people from different places, they, they, they donate this. Jinwar is one of the most peaceful places I've ever been. The color lavender is everywhere. The buildings are short, squat, and handsome, resembling the architecture one finds in New Mexico. It's very quiet, but outside its walls, wildfires race across the land, burning through dried brush in the brutal Syrian summer. I watch as a small fire tornado hauls ass just a football field or two away. Our guide admits that fire is a constant threat. Fortunately, like nothing uh, bigger happened, no? Yeah. Like nothing, like no cables, no uh, pe uh, people was hurt. The children two times were evacuated. And we together with neighbors, also with like help of the surrounding uh, people, we were fighting with the fire with the women here. Wow. Yeah. It's almost kind of like it's an immediate danger, but there's also like kind of symbolic. As we were driving up here, we saw that big wall turkey built. Yeah, and sort of, of that, yeah. that threat looming. I don't know. It seems like... Yeah, it's like an expression of it, no? Yeah, I was exactly. also thinking about it, no? It's like the, the direct threat here also to the attack and for the like the political situation of the like of the Turk troops and of yeah. the occupation of the Turks it's still it's really it's really present, no? So it's kind yeah. of yeah you could see that it's uh... three months after our visit, the Turkish military surged forth from behind its walls. Artillery fire and missiles rained down on the land around Jinwar, and the town was, temporarily, abandoned by its residents. I was surprised by how hard the news hit me. Seeing the fires from miles away doesn't make it hurt any less when they reach you. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. After our tour, we head back into the town hall. A few more of Jinwar's women have assembled and agreed to talk to us, so we have another cup of coffee and sit down for an interview with a young Arab woman. She has a large flower tattoo on her left forearm and a t-shirt that says, Every day is a second chance. I'll play a little bit of the audio from this, but I have to tell you my recorder started having issues at just this point in the day. If you didn't understand that, I'll repeat. This young woman was explaining to me that this month she was the village representative. That made her the point woman for talking to journalists, and it also meant that she was expected to represent Genoir to the other towns in the area. All the women here take turns doing this job, which is scary for some of them, but, our host points out, it also forces them to grow as people. She, and most of the women we talk to, prefer not to use their names. But she explains to us how she came to Genoir. Her husband, she says, was a tattoo artist, but over time he developed a problem with alcohol, and then he became violent. At first, she thought that maybe having a child would fix their issues. These problems. So she gets first child, then uh, it was like not that bad, but it was like still on the problems there. So then she get another child. She saw that it should be fixed. We have more children, and the relation will be more tight. But doesn't work. She had the third one, but last year of her life with him, it was uh, get too bad, and she couldn't manage to to offer that anymore. So she decided to get divorced. When she decided she'd had enough, she went to the women's house in her town and reported him. These places, the women's houses, were formed by an organization called Congrea Star, a confederation of different women's groups across Rojava. Their core belief is that no society can be truly free unless its women are liberated. It's basically the same sentiment that old fighter had expressed to Chabot and I. There is no revolution without the women. The people at the women's house helped her divorce from her husband and separate her life from his. They told her about Genoir and suggested it might be a good place for her to go make a new start. So she took her children and moved there. In the months since, she has learned to farm, how to help manage a store, and how to administer a small village. 
I ask if she would ever have been able to consider leaving her husband before the revolution. Her answer is simple. La is the Arabic word for no. We next talk to a woman who introduces herself as the wife of a shahid. She is also Arab, and she wears more conservative clothing and a fuller headscarf. One of the criticisms you'll hear sometimes is that Rojava is really a Kurdish supremacist movement, and that Arabs are oppressed in the area. It's an idea that the Turkish government has a vested interest in pushing. Several months after I conduct these interviews, in the wake of their invasion, the Turkish government will force hundreds of thousands of Kurdish civilians out of their homes and move in Arab refugees from elsewhere in Syria to take their place. It's a deliberate act of ethnic cleansing. We see no evidence of racial animosity here in Jinwar, though. Our next interviewee expresses that her kids are happy here, learning with the Kurdish children and studying both Kurdish and Arabic languages. She, and a number of the women we talk to in Jinwar, don't express a great depth of knowledge about Abdullah Ajalan's ideas or about any of the radical politics that have made this place such a cause celeb among the global left. And I suppose some people might find that disappointing. To me, it's a pretty clear statement about the relative lack of brainwashing that occurs here. The ideological underpinnings of this place are important to many of its residents, but no woman is denied a place to live here because they haven't read enough political theory. Jinwar is not large, just a bit over a dozen families, but it's also very young. Our hosts explain that the goal is to build more places like it, and not just women's villages, but other villages made using the eco-friendly construction methods used in the creation of these homes. The buildings in Jinwar all have high ceilings and carefully positioned ceiling fans in order to stay comfortable during the blazing Syrian summer without using air conditioning. And it is in fact very comfortable inside. One day, they tell me, villages like this will help to reduce the influence, size, and ecological toll of overcrowded cities like Kamishlo. Sentiments like this are common in Rojava. The goals of the true believers here are always spectacular and ambitious. And it would be easy to see them as a lot of hot air if it weren't for the huge amount of work that's evident all around me. It is far too early to say if the things they're aiming for will ever actually happen, of course. Everyone I speak to is conscious of the fact that this could all be swept away in the space of an evening, with the speed of a wildfire tearing across a windswept plain. But in spite of that, they struggle on, putting one foot forward in front of the next, doing the work, and hoping they'll get the chance to keep doing it tomorrow. We say our goodbyes, pile into Alan's van, and drive away. I look back as we roll off, and I notice that the word Jinwar atop the gate has been split in half by its opening. Now I see the two halves of the word as separate terms. Jin, war, women's war. The Women's War is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.